It's a privilege to be with all of you again this morning. And I was just reflecting as I sat down that this is one of the most incredible communities anyone could have the opportunity to be part of. And it's also very cool to be able to stand up and see faces that are now becoming stories and conversations and people whose homes I have been in or conversations we've had just passing each other in Andes or in College Place. So it's good to see all of you here um, as we worship together this Sabbath. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can come as a community, that we can gather and share in the joy of encountering your word. We pray that your spirit that has been present will continue to guide us, that you will challenge us, that you will transform us, that you will comfort us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start off this morning by asking how many of you here have siblings? Just a show of hands. Okay. How many of you have more than one sibling? Okay. Let's up the stakes. Who has more than five siblings? That's a surprising amount of hands we still have. How many of you have got more than six siblings? Okay. Okay. Seven, one, two, three, four, eight, four, okay, nine. Okay, sir, you just have to tell me. How many siblings do you have? Eleven. Okay, eleven going once, going twice. Anyone else have more than eleven? Thirteen, okay. Walt Meski, of of course. That is an incredible amount of siblings. I grew up with essentially no siblings until I was 11. And so this first part of this sermon for me is a little theoretical because I'm speaking about hand-me-downs. And if you had 13 siblings, you'd have had probably a lot of hand-me-downs. You'd have been given a coat that was three times too small uh, because it it was that time. And your parents were thrifty and they would have made sure that they did not waste any occasion to make sure that you could have your siblings' clothes, their coats. You could have a patched pair of jeans that had gone through three brothers and you would have it. And each one of these clothes would start to have stories that you would sit down at the dinner table and you would reminisce what each of these uh, pieces of clothing meant. And if you grew up in a home where you always had enough but never extra, some of these things may make sense to you. Growing up, I grew up in a home where we had enough but not extra, and so we would go to something called a car boot sale, very unique to England. You may be thinking, I know what a car is, but what is a boot? Okay, I'll tell you what a boot is. On a car, there are five doors. Sometimes you may have one two at the front, two at the back, and then the thing at the back is called a boot that you open. And so you'd go to a field or a community center and you'd have cars come, open the boot, and have a sale. And you call it a car boot sale. So on Sunday, we would go, I'd be given two or three pounds, a lot of money if you're eight years old, and I would have the opportunity to go through the treasure that each car boot may have. And and growing up in a home like that, I was taught about the importance of money 
I was taught about the importance of being able to be thrifty and of being able to use well what I have. We live in an age where uh, although we are out of the recession, Gallup says 25% of Americans have concerns about money. And wherever we are on the spectrum, whether you had enough, whether you never had to think about money, whether you went to car boot sales, whether you had hand-me-downs through three or four of your siblings, each of us live in a world where money has an effect on us. And the Bible, because the Bible is a book which speaks about our life, speaks about money. In fact, Jesus Christ spoke a lot about money. 16 out of his 38 parables touched on money in some way. And one in 10 explicitly name money or wealth as the subject of the parable. And today we're going to take just a few moments to consider what Francis Bacon said, that money is a wonderful master, but a terrible, no, I think I got that wrong. It's a, it's a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. There we go. This is good. Now I know you're listening because all of your brows just went, excuse me? <laughs> okay. So our passage that we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 6, and it's at the end of the, uh, it's in the middle of Jesus Christ's Beatitudes as he has ascended onto a hill, and he's recapitulating Israel as the new Moses. And he has disciples who are lying on the grass listening to this new upstart preacher, and he is given essentially the new laws of the kingdom of God, which is being inaugurated as he comes to bring the good news and the gospel to people who are in need and who are desperate for hope. And so Jesus Christ speaking with prophetic significance, talking about the values of the kingdom of God, decides that for some reason it is important enough to stop for a moment and to talk about money. And it's interesting because when you look at the Bible, there are consistent uh, framings about wealth and about money, and often we actually compartmentalize our life and we spiritualize it, we become almost Gnostic in the way in which we have our religion. We start to assent to theories, but when it comes to how our everyday lives are lived, often there is a chasm which we never bridge. And Jesus Christ is relentless in speaking about the place of money in our life as a place of discipleship and as a place where our hearts can be uh, found to be wanting. Let's read from verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your heart is, your treasure is also. Jesus Christ is speaking to a community that already has a monetized economy. They understand supply side demand. They understand what it means to have to scrimp and to save. They understand what it means not to have enough. And most of the people that Jesus Christ is speaking to are going to be um, in the bottom half of the economic strata. When you go and look at first century Israel, you had a large amount who were in the 1%, you had an even larger amount who were at the bottom, and you had a thin sandwich in the middle of people who were middle class. 
And those who are coming to hear Jesus probably do not have uh, oodles of money that they are swimming in. And yet he tells them that to have your treasure on earth is not a smart or a viable thing to do. Is Jesus Christ trying to cut the vital economic nerve that people have? Is he trying to say that working hard, that having results that pay you as a result of working hard is bad? Is Jesus Christ marauding and saying that those who hold land, those who make money are evil? Is this what he's saying? I don't think so. You'll see as we walk through Matthew chapter 6 that what Jesus is saying is that where we locate our security, and if we locate our security in a perishable commodity like money or treasure or anything else, we will not be on safe footing in our life. He says that to put our security on a perishable thing means that we are susceptible to finding ourselves thrown off when the markets go up or the markets go down, that it will never give us the peace of mind we crave if our peace is put in a commodity. It seems to me Jesus is saying something along the lines of, listen, if you are a disciple of mine, it makes no more sense for you to put your trust and security in what you have in your bank account than it would for you to say, I am going to conduct my finances exclusively through payday loans. You know, I am not going to go to a bank. I, I am not going to go to my financial advisor. I will just use payday loans to pay uh, my rent, to pay everything that I need. I will have that ridiculous APR, but this is the way I choose to do it. Jesus is saying it is unwise. And then as he looks at this picture, he says what we ought to do is put the location of our security in heaven. It would be the equivalent of having an incredible account where you were given a 40% APR guaranteed up to $10 million. Jesus is saying, if you put your location and your security in me, you will be given more security than you could ever dream of. And yet, as I read this, I think about all of those who are listening who are poor, who are debt-ridden, who are carrying loans that they can... Um, uh, they can barely pay off, who have tax collectors putting onerous interest rates on what they collect to give to the Romans, who are uh, disenfranchised and unable to support themselves. And Jesus Christ seems to be incredibly hard. And then he continues in verse 22 and 23, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And as Jesus Christ is saying this, I imagine perhaps there are two young men who were just wandering about and they saw this crowd on the hill and they're like, what's going on up there? And so they go up to the hill, they hear Jesus Christ talking about money and then all of a sudden he starts to talk about the eye and they're confused, completely perplexed. But before they have a chance to catch their breath, Jesus plows on and then he gets to verse 24. No one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And this really is Jesus' summary statement of what he has been doing, that we cannot serve two masters. 
And when Jesus says we cannot serve two masters, he's not speaking, my friends, about perhaps the tension you may have about work-life balance of, you know, am I able to give the work that my department or that my employers uh, want of me and still be a good husband or a wife or a Christian? He is not talking about this. He is talking about a paradigm of slavery where the power dynamics are very different. If you have a master and you are a slave, you do not get paid time leave. You don't have Thanksgiving off. You don't have the ability to accrue money in your savings account. You are at their beck and call. They have the power of life and death over you. And Jesus Christ is positing that how we treat money and treasure in our life is like the power dynamic between a slave and a master. And he says that to be split between two is emotional schizophrenia. It's impossible to do so. You are either a servant and posture toward God, or you are a servant toward treasure and towards wealth. An example of uh, sometimes how we try to live this bifurcated life and usually do it poorly was last year when the finals were happening and uh, in the NBA, there's a couple of teams that have brothers that play um, in the NBA, right? And and we did this in first serve. Let's see if we can figure out and, and get some guesses if you know two brothers that play together in the NBA, I'm looking at you right here. Give me a guess. You have the who? The who? Oh, Gasol. Yeah, yeah. The Gasol brothers. Okay. Who else? We have the Curry brothers. Okay. Well, you got there a lot quicker. So you have Steph Curry. You have Seth Curry. Now, the names sound very similar. If you don't watch basketball, this means nothing to you. The point is, they're both multimillionaires that play a game where they shoot a ball through a hoop and get tons of money. <laughs> Their parents obviously have excellent genes. Their father was also an NBA player. And so there was a game where the Golden State Warriors was playing the Blazers, and the parents turned up, and both of their sons are in these teams. So now they have a dilemma. You're a parent. How do you choose which son to support? And so they came up with this fascinating idea. When the game started, we saw the parents walk in, and on the front, one of them had the Golden State Warriors jersey. On the back, they had the Blazers jersey. And so, depending on who was playing, they would be able to cheer for both, but I believe the parents had flipped the coin and they had decided who they were going to cheer for. So, of course, this is far too juicy for the media to ignore. So, on top of training the camera on what's happening on the court, they would look at the parents. And you would find over and over again that as Seth Curry, the lesser a-board basketball player would go and throw bricks up. I'm sorry, I know we're in the Northwest, we should root for the Blazers, here's the truth. So he's throwing out bricks. I think he, he shoots one for seven for three. And then, you know, the, the, the mom is trying to get ready to cheer, but she, he's just building a house with all the bricks he's throwing. And then S- Steph Curry, who is a phenomenal three-point shooter, he's just hitting three after three, and you would see the mom stand up with the Blazers jersey on the front and the uh, Golden State on the back, and she would start cheering for her son. And this is a really long way to say it's impossible to really split fairly your allegiances. 
And I'm sure Jesus Christ was not thinking about Steph Curry and Seth Curry, but it came to me as an impossibility to have your heart equally mastered by one thing or another any more than it is to sit and stand at the same time. And so what we're going to do just for these next few minutes is look at this um, idea that Jesus Christ insists on that you cannot serve God and wealth together. And when Jesus says stuff like this, I mean, as a millennial, we, you know, we have this consistent dialogue of the generations who went before us and how millennials are in such an atrocious place when it comes to um, appropriating wealth, to be, being able to be at the same place that our parents were behind me. I am reading this and I'm thinking, Jesus, you need to cut me some slack here. You know, maybe my parents might have needed this text, but us, have you seen our home ownership rates? Have you seen what we are saddled with when it comes to student loans? Have you seen the opportunity costs that we have to deal with? We don't need this text, Jesus, but apparently we do. Jesus Christ comes and he starts to tell us that we cannot serve God or money, and he says it not as a moral judgment. He says this not to make you feel guilty, my friends. He says this not because he wants to spoil the party. Jesus says this because it is a simple fact that you cannot do it. When you go to the Aramaic, the word which is used for uh, uh, mammon is mamoa, which appears to have a root meaning of something that is trusted in. And then that meaning became treasure and it became wealth and it became worldly possessions. And so in this entire dialogue, Jesus is asking some pointed questions. Here's question number one. The question he's asking me and he's asking you this morning is, what do you trust in? This is what's at the heart of the text. What do you trust in? And then that question leads into a secondary question, and that question is, who owns your heart? Because this is where the rub is. Who owns your heart? And it's interesting because when we talk about money, and I, I am pausing just to make this comment, this aside, I do understand that it can often seem as if um, the, the, the talk around money can be so negative that for those of you who have done well, who are wealthy, who have lived lives and gone to school, who ate ramen, who ate rice and beans, who saved well, who had some good breaks, that Jesus Christ and preachers only ever talk about money and wealth in a negative way. That's not the case when you read the Bible. The Bible does not denigrate those who have money, who have wealth, but the, the, the core of the issue is an issue of the heart. This is the fundamental question. It's not how much you own, but it's who owns your heart. This is the question. And so it doesn't matter at this point whether you are surviving on EBT and snap cards. It doesn't matter if you have a six-figure income. It doesn't matter if you don't even need to pull an income because your uh, stocks are so good you can live off the interest. Doesn't matter. The question Jesus is insisting each of us answers is not how much you own, but who owns your heart. This is the unrelenting question that the God of heaven, in recapitulating his kingdom, decides is important enough to tell a bunch of people sitting outside on grass. I wouldn't have done it. 
I'd have continued to do what Jesus did, talk about moral virtues, the ethical position that you need to have to be a kingdom, give hope for the future. I wouldn't have spoken about money. Jesus did, and that's why we're reading it this morning. And so Jesus continues because he knows that money is a wonderful servant, but it's a tyrannous master. It does not let you go if you make it the master of your life. Interestingly, when you look at the Old Testament and the economy that Jesus, that was set up for the Israelites, newly released from Egypt, you will find that a full 33% of their income went back to the temple. 33%, my friends. Within, that, within our church, we have, you know, this system of benevolent giving and 10%. But if you were an ancient Israelite and you put together the sacrifices, the celebration, the um, the um, offerings that you would give, approximately 33% of your wage would have gone back to the temple. Now, there's some of you who are like, wait, hold on. You normally end your sermon with a challenge. If you're going to ask me to give 33%, you've got another thing coming, my friend. No, I'm not going to ask you to give 33%. In fact, we're not going to ask you to give anything. And, in, and if you looked at the New Testament, it's an even more onerous um, number because Jesus Christ meets people and says, hey, everything you have, give it away to the poor. So it's either 33% or 100%. But Jesus Christ does not let us off the hook. And so as we look during this season of Thanksgiving, you know, we have this gorgeous uh, physical um, oh, thank you, portfolio. That's right. Oh, cornucopia, not portfolio, right? That makes more sense, right? We have this beautiful cornucopia that shows the generosity and the abundance that we have and that we are able to live with as a community. And I think it's a wonderful picture of, the, uh, of what God would have us to, to experience in our own life when it comes to our money. God wants us to be generous with what we have. God wants us to... Uh, give out of an open hand and not out of a tight-fisted hand. God wants to free us from making good things into God things so that we can have the greatest things that he wants for us. And when you read this text, one thing which continues to haunt me is this idea of our eye being dark and our eye being light. And it's a weird weird text. And if you go and look at scholars, they will battle it out for 60 pages and not have moved much from what the other person says. But I think we can at least say this, that God wants each of us in our habits to have a generous eye, to be able to look for opportunities to be generous and to be given in our life. God wants us to be a community, my friends, who pay attention to our neighbors, God wants us to be a community who pay attention to the poor, who partner with those who are in need, to look for ways to give rather than ways to hoard and to hold on to. God wants you this afternoon to live a life free from anxiety and worry and freedom from not enough. And in this text, we're going to read 31 to 33, which really, I think, gives us the interpretive key to what we have just read. Because Jesus Christ seems to be saying some crazy stuff, just insane. Like, who is he? Is he just lounging on a beach in Galilee with no bills? How does he expect us to live like this? 
And then verse 31 to 33 in Matthew chapter 6, he says this, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then a text that is so familiar to all of us. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This is the promise that Jesus Christ gives to us. And I think the beautiful thing is I am speaking to a group of people who many of you for decades have claimed this promise and you have been part of the beautiful system of giving that the Adventist church has and you have given faithfully for decades. You have taken off the top before you do anything else because you have recognized that God has given all of it to you and that as an act of spiritual uh, habit, you want to honor God with the gifts that he has given to you and so you give in a faithful monthly rhythm, in a way that has been able to support missionaries, in a way that supports teachers, in a way that supports community aid, disaster relief agencies. You have done it. And for that, we are grateful. And we thank you for listening to the summons of God to live generous, thankful lives. Whether you do that online every month, whether you use the tithe envelopes, whether you do it as and when you are able to, we thank you for engaging in these disciplines of the heart that allow us to live and know that God is in charge and God will not let us down. And this church is full of people, again, whose generosity has allowed us uh, to have programs that serve those who are coming out of prison and who are being reintroduced into society. Your money has done that. Your giving has given us the opportunity to start a food pantry for students. That has been your partnership with the church. Your giving allows us to be able to help people who come destroyed and who have tears to be able to leave with hope. You have done that. And as we move into this season of Thanksgiving and you think about the doorbuster deal that you're about to get onto Black Friday or Cyber Monday, you know, you have saved it already in your Amazon Prime account. You are ready. You have an alarm. You're going to get that deal. You have that 30% off coupon for Target and you're about to go. You're leaving at 6 a.m. You're going to get to Tri-Cities. You're going to wait at the door because you are getting your Target haul. Even as you think about that, here is the challenge I want to give and leave for you. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of enjoying the abundance, the cornucopia that God has given to you, and as a way to practice a habit of generosity, as you go and you buy that door buster deal from, from uh, Walmart, find a way to be able to give back to a cause that perhaps you already support. Perhaps you already have two students in another country that you give a monthly amount to that gives them books, supplies, and clothing. If you go on Thanksgiving and you get something else for yourself, send them an extra payment. Perhaps you have a sibling who has fallen on hard times and for the last six months you have been supporting them. Give them an extra gift. Practice generosity. Practice having a heart 
which understands that God is the owner, and because he is the owner, we, in fact, don't need to live lives of scarcity, but we can live lives of abundance. We are rich because God is our provider. If you want more opportunities as you think about what you're going to do, I'm going to do some announcements, touches of interest. You can pull out your bulletin. You can take a a pen. You can circle some of these. We have Thanksgiving baskets, and this is for all of us to engage in. And you have an opportunity to help people tangibly in this valley to extend beyond these walls, to make a difference in the lives of people who are coming to a time where, although if you have enough, it's a beautiful memory, but if you don't have enough, it exacerbates the fact that you don't have enough, the fact you don't have enough to eat. And we have the opportunity to be able to partner with torchbearers with these Thanksgiving baskets. I was telling uh, Volker when he made his announcement about pies, that we must have some people who bake good pies and nobody put their hand up and I was shocked. I know we have people who bake incredible pies in Walla Walla and we are looking for 50 of these pies when we have a Thanksgiving meal so that we can give to the community and, and help to be the hands of feet and feet of people. Eden's Pantry, the newest thing which has started here. If you've not heard about it, you will hear about it. And look at the details, my friends. You have an opportunity to come to an open house here in the church, December 3, 5 p.m. in the youth room, and see how this pantry is going to help to take the cornucopia of goodness that we have here to help students. When you go to Andes, my friends, and you check out, there will be some crates where you can leave food that will be picked up by students so that people who need food will be able to have it supplied by Eden's pantry. There are so many opportunities for us to practice what God is calling us to, to be people of the kingdom, who have a singular pursuit of God and who are able to live generous lives and know that God owns it all and he will take care of us. Amen.